All right, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to First uh, Timothy chapter 4. We're going to pick it back up where we left off. As we get into 2 Timothy, it's going to be really cool because Timothy, once again, is told by the Apostle Paul that in the latter times, you know, people, things are going to be different. Welcome to the latter times. Things are different. Things are crazy. And there's great upheaval in the world. And of course, that's how he started off in chapter 4. Paul began to, to tell Pastor Timothy, you know, that in the last days, many should depart from the faith. Many people are going to do that. And we've seen it. You know, I was talking with a lady this morning, and this is in my notes. I'm going to give it to you for free. And, you know, we were just talking about the gospel, and she said she couldn't understand how people couldn't believe. And I says, oh, I, I understand absolutely why people don't believe. And she goes, well, I, I don't get it. I said, what I don't get is how somebody can sit in a pew for 30 years and not believe. That I don't understand. But I would venture to say that happens more often than what most people think. And that's the part I don't get. So we need to be able to communicate the gospel. And that's really, I see that as my calling. That's why I'm a Bible teacher. That's why I try to infuse the Word of God into you guys and to those who listen to me on radio. And Because what I'm trying to do is train you and teach you to teach others also. So that you're not, you know, because a lot of times people, when I ask people, why don't you share your faith? They well, you know... And, and they go into this whole, I can't do it like you do. And I'm going, first off, nobody's called you to be me. I can't even do it the way I do it. If it isn't the Lord doing it, it usually falls off the end of this pulpit anyway. So, you know, you just got to be reassured that the Holy Spirit's going to use you at any given moment. And he will. You just got to be ready. This isn't your ability. You've heard me say a million times, not your ability. It's your availability that God wants. So all you got to do is make yourself available. You know, remember Moses when he was up on the mountain? What did he do? He's like, oh, Lord, I'm a man of stammering lips, and all I got is a stick. And the Lord said, let me have the stick, and let me show you what I can do. So we just take what we have, bring it to the Lord, and let him use you. But arm yourself. As he's going to tell Timothy, in chat, when we get to, to, to 2 Timothy, he's going to say, study to show thyself approved unto God as a workman who needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So that's what we're trying to do, is simply infuse it. But Paul is going to start telling Timothy, remember he's talking about pastors, he's talking about elders, and he went into great detail last time. And we left it off, of course, in verse 11. And of course Paul said that we had suffered ridicule because we believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We believe in the gospel, and, and, and he's the savior of all men, but especially them that believe. And if you didn't get that study last time, I encourage you to do it. I don't want to recap it too much, but it is amazing. I call it the Jesus effect, because in the book of Galatians, you remember Paul was talking about the issue of law and works, you know, or works and grace. And so often people want to mix the two. They, they, you know, they mean well, I think. I think sometimes they don't realize that they're actually taking away from the finished work of Jesus Christ. They don't realize they're doing that, but that's what they do. And of course, the Judaizers, they came in going, well, yeah, you guys can be saved by grace, but first you need to be a Jew. So they whipped out the knives and they said, hey, we need to start circumcising some people. And of course, you know, the guys got a little antsy about that, going, wait a minute, you know, I got a little too much Gentile in me for that. 
You know, and so they began to rebel. And so Paul came in and he rebuked them for that. And he says, what are you doing? He said, if you believe that circumcision is what brings you righteousness with Christ, Christ has become of no effect to you. You cannot mix grace and law. It is all faith. I saw a post on Facebook, and I get all kinds of crazies on there. And I don't have time to teach a theological seminary over the Facebook. I'm not going to do it. Most of the time, I just hit block because I just don't have the time. And somebody went on there, and they, were, they posted this thing from some church somewhere else. I won't even mention the name of it. And they said, you know, come to church, get baptized, and be saved. And somebody posted underneath, they said, only the blood of Jesus Christ can wash away your sin. And he started a firestorm like you wouldn't believe. And every Acts 238 Christian that was out there was on there. Because that's the only verse that they know in the whole Bible. I thought, I, and, and, I'm, and the Lord's battling with me, and I'm going, let me just, let me give one verse. I could blow that out of the water with one passage of Scripture. Paul says, you know, when it comes to baptizing you guys, he says, I don't know who I baptized. I baptized Crispus and Gaius. Beyond that, I don't know who I baptized. For God sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Separate. Why? Because water, if you go, if you go into that water a sinner, you ain't coming up nothing but a wet one. That's all that's going to happen. It is what happens in your heart. That's what God was saying. Then look on the outward appearance. Because as people, we want to have something to do with it. I want to have my fingers in it somehow. Well, you, I got news for you. No. God said no. Do you realize, and I'm speaking from a Jewish point of view now, do you realize even in the Old Testament, when God told them to build the altars, when they were out into the wilderness, they were to collect rocks off of the ground to build that altar. They weren't allowed to use a hammer. They weren't allowed to use a chisel. They weren't allowed to use anything. They were to build that altar by simply using what God had made and what God had created. And they built that altar, and it was all God. He created the rocks. He created the ground. He created everything that they were going to use in the sacrifice. But it was all God. He will not tolerate us as a people to remove any glory that he's placed upon his son who has done it all for each and every one of us. That's the beauty of the vicarious life of Jesus Christ. Not only did he die for us, gang, it was substitutional. Yes, he died in our place, but he lived in our place. And he has imputed that righteousness to you by faith alone if you simply believe. That's the Jesus effect. And we never want to forget that. And Paul tells him there, in chapter 12 it's because we believe in that god especially those that believe that's the god we believe in and then he goes on here look at verse 11 he says these things command and teach this is the primary purpose of the pastor gang this is what he's trying to get through to young timothy is to command and teach this is why paul went to great lengths as we have seen to define what the pastor must be in chapter 3 he didn't say it's a good idea if he's that. He goes, therefore, a bishop must be. And he gave, of course, the traits, those beautiful traits that come out of any man who is seeking the office. It's not that he tries to attain those things to become a pastor. He already has those things. Therefore, he is a pastor. Remember, if I lay hands on you, I could lay hands on you and call you a deacon, and that will make you nothing. 
I can lay hands on you, call you an elder. That don't make you an elder. At best, what we do is we see that trait of deacon. We see that trait of eldership. We see the love, the grace, the mercy, the servitude. We see it. It's already in your life. Why? Because you're doing it for the Lord. I love the fact when people would come to me and they go, Doug, I want to do this. I want to do that for the Jesus. You know what I used to tell them? Make it so. Because if you're called to do it, I couldn't stop you. Because if you're going to do something for it, you're going to do it. You're just going to be motivated by the Spirit of God, and it's going to be supernatural, but second nature, if you understand what I'm saying. It's just going to come natural. You don't have to make a list of things that you want to do. Paul says, command and teach these things to Timothy. Hmm. The implication, of course, is that those who hold the office should not be pharisaical. That is, that they should not be saying one thing and doing another. That's why he gave us that list in chapter 3. You know, in the book of Romans, in chapter 2, in verse 21, you can just write it down. He says, Thou therefore that teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? You know, it's easy for men to sometimes stand behind a pulpit and simply deliver the direction. You understand? Too easy. I mean, it's been like this for years, but it's really this way today that most guys, and sometimes women, can stand behind a pulpit and spew what they have simply downloaded off of the web. You do understand that, right? I mean, do you realize that they actually have companies out there who sell sermons to pastors? You subscribe to them. You, you, you pay like 50 bucks a month, and they'll send you not only a sermon, they'll give you a little illustration you can put up on the, you know, the overhead, they, they give you everything you need to be an absolutely ineffective pastor. Because that's the way it comes across. It's ministry. And when it's passionate, that's because it's real in here. And when it's real in here, it's going to come out here. It's just the way it is. But it has to be real to the man who's teaching. Thou that teachest another, teachest thou not thyself. He's going to tell Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he's going to tell him the husbandman must first be partaker of the fruit. You have to know it yourself. So often, that's another point when I talk to people about why they haven't, you know, why they don't witness to people, why they have never led somebody to the Lord. Well, I feel, you know, I feel this and I feel that. Well, first off, we don't walk by feelings, okay? We walk by faith. But let me ask you a question. How much do you love the Lord? How much do you really love? You know, the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. I can attest to this. He is good. And you know that. You know that. He's good. Man, I want everybody to have a taste of what I've got. I really do. I mean, I'm not saying that my life is, oh, I'm just a perfect Christian. But i got to be honest with you. I know what it is to walk in faith. I know what it is to fail. Not only as a Christian, I have failed as a pastor in the times past. I know what failure feels like. I know how miserable that can make you feel. And the enemy wants to beat you to death with those type of things. But I also know that it is in whom I have believed. And he is going to finish that work which he has started in me because he's imputed that righteousness to me by faith alone. That's what carries me through. It's because of who I'm trusting in. Because there's going to come that time of failure in your life. Some of you probably experienced that already. We all do. But it's the grace of God that carries us through, just like the song says. 
And when we come through that, we find that we are more stable in the Lord than when we first believed. It's the, it's the failure and then the victory that we have that brings us to a more solid standing with Christ. I don't care where you're at or in your walk with the Lord. Too many pastors are more concerned today with upsetting somebody in their sermons. So we teach around things. I don't, as you know, but a lot of people do. They teach around things. They avoid things because we don't want to upset someone. You know, I was told that even in our own denomination, they, they sent letters out to some of the pastors telling them what they should and should not touch on. Ooh, boy, they, 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 it's a good thing I didn't get one of them. I would have been like Martin Luther. I'd have taken that letter, I'd have went right up to the district office, and I'd have taken a nail, and I'd have hammered it right to the front door and wrote with a big black marker on it, no. What I'm going to deliver is the Word of God. And I'm going to preach the grace of God and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and the redemption from sin till I draw my last breath. And I can do that because I know what sin feels like. I know. I've been a partaker of it. And it has a miserable effect on our lives. I know that. But I want to see other people not have to go through those things. You know? People can learn vicariously. But for them to tell us to, oh, you know, avoid these certain topics. No, that's crazy. So, but here's the beauty, and this isn't in my notes. I'm going to give it to you for free. Here's the beauty of teaching expositorily, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Why? Because we will cover every topic. Those of you who have been following me for years know that. I was laughing. I was telling a pastor the other day because, you know, I was trying to encourage him. Adopt this method. It's nothing new. Listen, expository teachers have been around since Paul the Apostle. He was the first. That's who we learned from. He was great at it. It, it, it produces, I said that he's going, well, you know, there's, there's so many subjects. I said, brother, listen, if you teach through the Bible, you will cover every subject known to man. I said, the cool part is, I said, when I look at the, because we have these stats that we run on our Facebook pages, and I said, that tells us, like, how many people are watching, you know, what they like when I'm preaching. And I think it's amazing that when, when the, my teaching in Romans is being broadcast on radio, you know, my listenership just soars. You know, it just goes way up. Why? Because I love preaching it. Why? Because it talks about the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. And then when I teach through the book of Acts, there's a little bit of a drop. Why? Because it's not full of love and grace. In some places it is. But there's other places where it's not so. Sometimes it's hard hitting. Then we get to places like Timothy where there's direction, where God's... It's the full counsel of God is what I'm trying to say. We need to get back to that just as the church of Christ in general. But this is what Paul's telling Timothy. Come in and teach these things. You know, stick close to it. Look at verse 12. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Let no man despise thy youth. I want you to get this. I want you to understand it. What Paul laid out here for Pastor Timothy is also applicable to all Christians. So it's not just to him as a pastor. Be an example of the believer, both in word and conversation. If you use the King James, that's what it says. The word conversation there, simply in the Hebrew or in the Greek, means uh, your manner of life. Some of your Bibles might actually just say manner of life. That's what he's talking about. 
So when he says word in conversation, I know that kind of sounds, you know, superfluous, but it's not. It sounds, you know, like he's being redundant. No, because it just means your manner of life. So in essence, what Paul's telling Timothy is let your word, that is your testimony, your story of his glory, be in line with your life, with the way you live. But why would he have to tell that to Timothy? Because so often in people's lives, it's not. So often our life, what we say and what we do is a total contradiction, not only to our words, but to the word. And we don't want that. We want it to be one and the same. You know, we need to have them running on parallel tracks. My testimony and the way that I live. It should be running on parallel, not trying to intersect all over there because it causes, what, a train wreck. And some, unfortunately, many people's lives look like train wrecks. Why? Because their conversation, what they say about Christ does not match up with what they do. They talk a good talk, you've heard this, but they don't walk a good walk. Why is that? I think the main reason for that is because they don't realize all that Jesus has done for them. They have not embraced the vicarious life of Christ. See, most Christians understand, like I was talking with that young lady this morning, most Christians understand the substitutionary death of Christ. We, they just do. If you ask Christians, what did, you know, what did Jesus do for you? They'll say, well, he died for me. Well, yes, he did. But do you grasp right now that Jesus lived? First, he lived for 33 years. Kept the law, all 613 of them, perfectly. Fulfilled every prophecy that was contained in the Old Testament concerning him. Fulfilled every law. And then Bible says in Romans, he imputed that to you. That doing right, that keeping of the command, he imputed to that you, to you by faith alone. See, that's a great thing. I mean, I heard an old preacher describe it this way one time. When you understand the substitutionary life of Christ, people say, well, if you teach that, Doug, if you say that, people's going to start just sunning their face off. Listen to me. I, this is an accusation that gets thrown against. It was even thrown against the Apostle Paul. Paul said, who some say we falsely teach, let us sin because grace abounds. God forbid. No, 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 no. That's not the case at all. Now, what I've always said is when they say, well, you're teaching, that's a license to sin. I go, you know what? You're doing a pretty good job of it without a license. You don't need a license. You don't need somebody to tell you that. You do a, a really good job of it anyway. The fact is, is when we grasp the vicariousness of Christ, when we grasp the substitutionary life of Jesus, think of it as a safety net. This is a guy, I heard this old pastor preach it this way. He said, you know, this life that we have in Christ is like walking a tightrope. He says, now it's not, it's not like, you know, it's not, you know, it's not, not really that dangerous, but you might take a step that you shouldn't have. It's possible. You take a step you shouldn't have. I can verify this. It, it is possible. And you might fall. You might. Jesus is the net that will catch you. You know, the Bible says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. And though he fall, doesn't say if he falls, though he fall, he will not utterly be cast down for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Love those verses. That tells me that God is the one who does it. Jesus is the one who is there for us. He's the one who is catching us at all times. Be an example of the believer, Paul tells him. Preach the gospel. Do those things that are right. In conversation, let your walk and your talk. And if you really understand the vicariousness of Jesus, you know what? It will be. You know, Jesus 
told us in, it was in Matthew 12, you know, he said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. He also told his own disciples one time that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. One produces the other. It's whatever's in your heart the most is what's going to produce the way you live. It just is. Because what's in here is what you really believe. You know, they came to Jesus one time and, and uh, you know, they were, they were griping because he sat down and, of course, he didn't wash his hands before he ate. And the Pharisees got all upset about this. Like, oh, that's disgusting. You know, oh, he's defiling himself. And Jesus said, no, no, no. It's not what goes into a man's mouth that defiles him. It's what comes out of his mouth. Because what comes out of his mouth comes out of his heart. And from this comes murder, seditions, adultery, fornication. He gives away. This is the things that defile a man. But to eat with unwashing hands. No. It's crazy. You can't put anything in your body that would actually defy you. It's what comes out of your heart. Because what is in here the most, that's, you see, it's the abundance of what comes out. Out of the abundance of the heart. I have often said you don't have to be a prophet or super spiritual to tell where a Christian really stands in Jesus. All you've got to do is listen. What are they talking about? What are they talking about? No, listen, I love music. You know, you guys know that I love music. I'm a guitar player, so get me around another guy like me and Jack and... You know, Jack's a phenomenal musician. He's played for some great people. He's been on so many recordings. And, and yet, when he was in the house, did we talk about music? Yeah. But it was so mingled with the gospel. And it's wild how your life just gets intertwined. And there's not an aspect of your life that isn't mingled. And you see Jesus in every bit of it. You know, not to sound pious or try to say, well, I'm holy. No, it's just, that's my experience. You just see God in everything that you do. That's how you know that your heart is full. See, that's really what it boils down to. Where's your heart with the Lord? You remember Simon the sorcerer? You know, he tried to buy that experience. You know, he wanted to buy, you know, the ability to lay hands on somebody. What did Peter tell him? Peter said, your heart is not right with the Lord. Your heart isn't right. Oh, you know, he, he confessed, remember? He, he, he made a profession of faith, he did all that, but his heart wasn't right. You know, I've often said, you can sit in the garage all your life and never be a car. You can go to McDonald's every day and never be a hamburger. You can sit in a theater every time it's open and you'll never be a movie star. And unfortunately, you can sit in church all your life and never be a Christian. And that's a scary proposition when you think about it. You know, because it's a heart thing, man. It's a heart matter. You know, the things that Jesus has done for us just overwhelms me when I think about it. Because I know what a wretch I am. I do. But I also know how glorious it is to be clothed with His righteousness and know that God doesn't just see me that way. I am that way. Because as He is, the Scripture tells me, so are we in this present world. That's a beautiful thing, man. It makes me want to do what's right, you see. It makes me want to do better. Not because I have to, but because I get to. So it's having that heart condition. That's really what he's talking about. Look at verse 13. He says, till I come, give attendance to reading. If you're taking notes, you need to make note of this. The exhortation and to doctrine. Three things. And these are the three things any good pastor or Christian, for that matter, should give themselves to. First, to the reading of the Word. Here's a sad truth. 
Many pastors today are just as ignorant of the Word of God as the people that they're trying to teach. That's unfortunate. Why? Because unfortunately, many of them spend no more time in the Bible than to prepare a sermon. You know, they'll, 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 they'll have a topic that they're going to speak on, so they look for a verse. It happened. Guys, I've been in the ministry for over 35 years. Listen to me. I know too many pastors. I'm telling you it happens. A lot of times their ignorance of the Scriptures is baffling. But yet, they get away with it. And it shouldn't be. Paul tells Timothy, give yourself, give attendance to reading. Some of the most blessed times that I have is at 3 o'clock in the morning and 3 to 4. My wife knows I'm not making this up. That I get up, that, that's every day for me. Whether it's Monday, Tuesday, I just every day. I've always been, ever since I was in the Army. I just, I don't know whether they just messed with my head and, and I just, but I just get up early. I always have. And but I get up and the first thing I do, of course, I crack open my Bible. That's my time. That's my time to be with the Lord and to really just sit and read. Not study. See, there's a vast difference between it, but read. Just read it. You know, it's just, it's kind of like just sometimes you ever just get in the shower and just stand there and let the water flow over you. You're just exhausted. You know, you don't even want to wash. You just, you just stand there. And just let it flow. That's the way I picture the, the washing of the water by the word. Just let it flow, man. Just read it. And it just, it's so amazing because sometimes when I just read it, it just speaks to me or some issue that's going on in my life at that moment. So reading is important. And then you know what I found out that later on, as I am teaching and then I am studying, that sometimes the very things that I have read prior to that, also the Lord will pull that and go, hey, remember when you were reading? So, oh, yeah. That's a great, and I'll just, and it just, my wife calls it connecting the dots. You, know, you always know how to connect the dots. Well, that ain't me. That's <laughs> not me. That's the Lord. You know, but why? Because we read. He said, give attendance to that. Give attendance to reading and to exhortation. Now, what, is, what does he mean by that exhortation? Well, in James, and I want you to write this one down, but I'm going to read it for you. Write down James 1.22. Most of you probably know this by heart. But in James 1.22, he says, Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. So often, gang, people can come and they'll set through a great, and it doesn't matter whether it's a long, short sermon, they'll set through a great sermon. And then they walk right out the door and they go, wow, that was good. They got a, 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 you know, a, a folder full of notes, a head full of knowledge, and they never do any of it. See, that's, that's crazy. That's what exhortation is. He tells Timothy, he says, look, give yourself a tennis to read. Read it and then exhort those people to do what it is that the Word of God says. So we're exhorting people to do that. And of course, he said, give yourself to doctrine. Doctrine is important. When we get to 2 Timothy and we start, I'm going to go through the great doctrines of the church. We're going to get to those. We're not going to do them this time. We're going to do them when we hit 2 Timothy. I want to cover those. Because there's lots of them, man. There's some great, great doctrines. And a lot of people are just ignorant of them. But it's absolutely fascinating stuff. Look at verse 14. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. So Paul tells Timothy here, he says, not to neglect that gift. Don't, don't neglect it. What was it? Well, I, we don't know. 
We don't know what it was. But the fact is, is that the presbytery, the elders actually laid hands on him and, and imparted to him some spiritual gifting. Might have been some teaching. I don't know what it is. But here's what I want you to see. Paul tells him not to neglect it. Which means it must be possible to what? To neglect. He says, don't neglect that gift which was given you by the laying on of hands of the presbytery. So it must be possible to neglect it. And you know what? There's some of us who are sitting here, some listening by radio, some on Facebook, who are neglected. Let me give you an example. I mean, there, there are people, and, and, and you know who you are, who maybe the Lord has given you. Let me just throw one out that, that might be a little controversial. I'm not trying to be controversial, but it's one I think you all understand. Maybe some of you have the gift of speaking in tongues. And I know that's probably true. Why? Because I know the Spirit of God. And I know that we're not necessarily a Pentecostal church. Well, God doesn't care. And there's people probably sitting here, I'm sure some here and listening by radio, who have the gift of speaking in tongues. And yet, because they have found themselves in a fellowship where it's not done very often, or maybe it's even frowned on, they have kind of just... Well, I'll just put that in my pocket, you know, keep that around for later, you know. And so they do what? They neglect it. They neglect it. They don't operate it. Let me tell you something. Listen. Don't do that. Paul says, don't neglect the gift. It's not if you neglect it, you'll lose it. I don't believe that for a moment. But I do believe that it becomes ineffective in your life. You know, the Bible says that the Spirit gives gifts severally as He wills. How and why? He does it for the edification of the church. And, and of course, in the, in the gifting of tongues, of course, it edifies the person who has it more than it does anyway. It's a great thing for prayer and those type of things, personal prayer time. It's, it's great for that. But don't neglect it. But the, it, it could be anything. Though. I mean, it, doesn't, it just doesn't, we don't know what it was for Timothy. But Paul encourages him not to neglect it. Because it's possible to neglect it. Don't do that. Meditate, he says in verse 15, upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in so doing thou shalt save both thyself and them that hear thee. I love the word meditate. I really do. In the Greek, it means to revolve in the mind. That's what it means. It also... It, it, I heard an old pastor one time uh, call it, it's like chewing the cut. You know? Chewing the cut. You know, cows, because cows got, oh, what, four stomachs? You got four stomachs? And they chew and then they swallow it and then they, they bring it back up and they chew it again. And that's what it is when you're meditating on the Word of God. Ruminating it, you know, over and over again. You know, it, it's cool because, man, so many times you'll get a scripture in your head and you begin to ruminate it. To chew on it, you're going, yeah, and then all of a sudden the spirit begins to speak to you and show you a different application that you never even thought of. You know, it's like, wow, you know, this applies to your life in this. So meditate on the word, he said. And then he tells him, he says, to take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Too often as pastors, it's too easy for us to give heed to other people, to their issues their sin. So often we don't like to do it with ourselves. Paul encourages Timothy first to, you know, take heed to yourself. I like the old boys, you know, from years ago who used to say, you know, when I'm preaching and I'm pointing, I might be pointing one finger at you, but I got three of them pointed back at myself. 
fact. It should always be that way. Take heed of yourself into the doctrine. So, like I said, so often we don't do that, but we should. I had a pastor one time who had a very large congregation, and he used to listen to me on radio every day, he told me. And he called me, wanted to have a meeting. And so he, he came to my office and he says, you know, he said, man, I've tried to do what you say to do. And I said, what do you mean? He says, I've tried teaching through the Bible. And, you know, he said, uh, yeah, it didn't work. What? What do, you mean? what do you mean it didn't work? Well, you know, the people got bored with it. I said, Really? I said, well, let me, let me straighten that one out for you. Man. They didn't get bored with the word. They got bored with you. That's what they got bored with. They got bored with your delivery. And there's an old saying, you know, if you haven't struck oil in 20 minutes, quit boring. Some of you got it. You know, the fact is, is that, you know, it's the delivery. It's not the word of God. I think most people, when we just go through the word, I think the word is exciting. I think most people want it. But he didn't continue in it. And he didn't take heed to himself and to the Word of God and to doctrine. Oh, he has a large church. As long as he gets up and he does his little spiel. I mean, he's a great guy. I mean, don't miss, I, I like him. I still do. But I think he's wrong in this area. I think he's wrong. I think he should have just stuck to it. Stick to it. Because what does it do? It produces disciples. You know, we talk a lot about that, don't we? Making disciples. Well, how do you make disciples? You make disciples with the Word of God. Not by giving you my wisdom, but the wisdom that comes from the Lord. And it comes directly from his word. So that's what we want to stick with. It looks like chapter 5. Moving right along. Paul now begins to dive into the subject of uh, ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is a big fancy word. They teach it in seminaries. And, and uh, often they use the books of Thessalonians and Timothy to teach their ecclesiology courses. And so, you remember back in chapter 3, Paul told Timothy, I've written this unto you, that thou mayest know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God. 1 Timothy uh, 3.15. So, in dealing with these issues of ecclesiology, and, and what that means basically is the structure and the function of the church. That's all that fancy term means. Paul now instructs Timothy as a pastor in dealing with the congregation. And that is how to deal with older men, older women, younger men, and younger women. And the first thing he tells Timothy here in verse 1 is rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father and the younger men as brethren. Timothy was a young man. How old was Timothy? Well, you know, we're guessing at it, but if he was in his mid-teens when he was traveling on the missionary journey with Paul, by this time he's 30. At the minimum, he's 30, maybe somewhere in the middle of that. He could be, you know, up to word 35. So he's a fairly young man as a pastor. Keep in mind, when you're dealing with the issue of elders, when it says elder in the church, you're talking about men who were, had to be 50. You were not considered an elder until you were 50 years old. Most of us have grown to realize that. You know, I mean, a lot of times you don't even get any sense until you hit 40, to be honest with you, and realize it's like, oh my God, you know, you look it back in your life, because at 16, I already thought I had a handle on everything. My dad was an idiot. My parents didn't know anything. You know, I knew exactly what I was going to do and when I was going to do it. And I did, and it was miserable, and I hurt, and finally I gave my life to the Lord. And then I realized that my parents weren't quite as stupid as I thought they were. 
And then it was like, wow, my dad really was a prophet in a lot of things. He told me one of these days this is what's going to happen, and it did. So we grow up. But the implication is that so often as older men, it is hard for us who are older to take direction from a kid. It just is. So this is why Paul kind of reiterates to Timothy, let no man look down upon your youth. Don't give them a reason. And one of the things he says here is don't rebuke an elder, but entreat him as a father. The word entreat there from the Greek actually means to, uh, to plead with, if you will. To plead with. I, here's what I used to tell young guys that I was training for the ministry. I would say, look, you only talk to an older man like you would talk to your father. And of course, I'm assuming that they have a respectful relationship with their own father. So you talk to an older elder, especially an elder, somebody who's in a position, you talk to him like a father. Now, and, and I know you're going to think I'm crazy, but during my Calvary Chapel time, when I was pastoring Calvary Chapel, we had our own cafe. I had a young man who wasn't named Timothy, but his name was Demetrius. Very biblical name. And he was all of 12 years old. 12. And Dimitri was a very interesting guy. Now, he was actually the son of my producer, who was producing our radio show at the time. Had been in the ministry. I've watched these guys, and you know, kind of grew up around. And Dimitri was a very, wow, what's the word I want to use for it? Um, responsible young man. Way, way beyond his years. Way beyond his years. So far, I mean, I can't, I can't even make you understand how far beyond 12 years old this kid really was. And I, of course, wanted to encourage that. I wanted to encourage that. I wanted to see him do great things for the Lord. I really did. I still do. But I remember coming to, coming to him, and this is a kid who actually started, because we had a huge building. We had a huge building. And, there, and, and as you, we well know, even here, we have lots of locks on doors. Locks go bad. You have to have keys made, and sometimes you have to have locks changed. And if you have to call a lock company, well, that's expensive. So, Dimitri was, I heard him talking one day. He had this curiosity about locks. And I said, Well, you know, there's a room upstairs that would be, look like a really good workshop. Why don't you go find it? The kid turned it into a lock shop. I'm not kidding. And next, and for, a few years after that, any time we needed locks changed, keys changed, Dimitri took care of it. But I had this cafe, and I needed somebody. And I needed somebody who could run it. Now, I had older people in there. But I took a chance, and I, I, and I set him down. i never forget him. He was, I don't think he was quite 13. And I know my elders thought I was nuts. My deacons thought I was crazy. But I put him in charge of running that cafe. Even though he had one of my deacons who, in my humble opinion, was one of the greatest servants that the Lord has ever put on the earth. Uh, he's home with the Lord. Now, but, uh, uh, sorry. Willie was a great guy. Loved him. And, uh, I told Will before I did it, I said, look, I'm gonna, here's what I'm going to do. And i never forget Willie. He goes, oh, man, Pastor, what are you doing? You're killing me. You're killing me, Smalls. What are you doing? 
that kid's going to drive everybody nuts. And he's going, I said, no, 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 listen, I'm, I'm, I'm trying something. Let's give him a chance, please. You know, I said, you know, and so, but I set him down. I said, look, son, let no man look down upon your youth. You have the ability, even at your age, you have this ability. God's gifted you with this. Don't give them a reason to think that my decision was wrong. And you know, he did a great job. Uh, there was a couple little <laughs> issues in the beginning, but he did a great job. And this is what Paul's trying to get across to Timothy, you know, to let no man look down. You've got to take into consideration when you're dealing with older men. So you treat these guys like fathers. You know, you entreat them, plead with them, reason with them. And of course, the younger men you treat as brothers. And it's, it's a beautiful thing when that happens. And look at verse 2. He says, the elder women treat them as mothers, the younger as sisters. And you'll notice, he says, with all purity. Hmm. The older women in like manner. So I love this verse because I've had the privilege in my ministry of knowing many older women who were a lot older than I, regardless of what age I was at the time and even now. There's always going to be women who are older. And there's something very beautiful about an older woman who just has a great relationship with the Lord. And I've had the privilege of having some of these women, and of course, you know, they, they, you, you do develop kind of a, and it's no disrespect to my own mother, I love my mother. But Paul even tells Timothy, treat them like, treat these older women like mothers. Because, you know, I've had several of these women who prayed for me and prayed for my ministry. And we had them in our fellowship and they would pray for the church. And it's just such a beautiful thing. And I, would, I remember one in particular. And of course, I remember several. I won't go into all of them. But this one lady in particular, she was 100 years old. And I was going, I was driving all the way to New Lexington to teach a Bible study. It was me and Todd, one of my assistants at the time. And we would go up there and teach at this kind of an assisted home uh, place, and these older women would come there, and it was just a, a really cool thing. But this older lady was one of those women who had been in the Bible longer than I'd been alive. And not only did she know the Word of God, but she knew doctrine, and she knew theology. And I was never more intimidated teaching the Bible than I was sitting in front of that lady. I mean, I remember one night, I mean, I would shake. I would start my hand when I, was, I turned the page. I was worrying that I was going, Lord, don't let me say something stupid because she's going to know it. And I know she'll call me out on it because this lady just, and, but you know what? She was always so gracious. And even at 100 years old, she never missed a Sunday. And I just loved her, man. I remember telling her, I got sick one time and I, and I waited. I didn't ask anybody at the church. I wanted her to pray for me. And I know that sounds crazy, but I mean, this woman didn't walk in a room, she floated in. Because she just had such a relationship with the Lord. And that's what Paul says to Timothy. Look, he says, these older women, treat them as mothers. You know, and it's a beautiful thing when you have women like that in your fellowship and in your ministry. You need to cherish those relationships. They're great. But the younger women, he says, treat them as sisters with all purity. Many a pastor, especially young guys and some older guys, have gotten themselves into a lot of trouble because they did not heed this admonition. 
you know, so often, you know, it, it, you, you tell pastors, you know, one thing you don't do. You don't counsel women by yourself in your office. You just don't do it. I remember Pastor Chuck used to tell us there's two things you don't touch in the ministry, son. The money or the women. Don't do it. You know, it was just a simple admonition, but many people have made the mistake, and, and of course they wind up paying the price. Paul is really saying the same thing, because when he says with all purity here, it, it means in a sexual way. Timothy more than likely was not married. We don't know that for a fact, but more than likely he wasn't. Most church you know, historians don't really acquaint him with a, with a wife. And so Paul kind of leads him, he even tells him to flee youthful lust, and we'll get to that. So it's more likely Timothy wasn't. So he says, look, when it comes to the younger women, treat them as sisters. Don't allow yourself to get stuck in that. Look at verse 3. <clears throat> he says, honor. And if you take a note, you need to make note of this, it, because the word honor here really, uh, in the context of, of, of the Greek, and what he's using here, it, it means to financially support. Okay? So he says, honor widows that are widows indeed. So support them financially is what he's saying. But... If any widow has children or nephews, some of your Bibles might say grandchildren because it means the same thing, nephews or grandchildren. Let them learn first to show piety at home. What, what he says is let them be accountable to them. Let them take care of their mother or their grandmother. And requite to their parents. That means show respect. You Repay your parents is what it means. I remember one time sitting in a... I was listening, and I'm not picking on anybody, but I, I remember, this is years ago, and I remember listening, my grandmother, uh, who I loved dearly, a nice, nice lady, and, and uh, she had such a, a beautiful testimony how she came to the Lord, but I won't go into that. Uh, but they were talking about putting her in there. And I realized, do not get me wrong, that there are reasons for it, and sometimes it, can't be, it cannot be avoided. So don't misunderstand me, what I'm saying. But at this particular juncture, it could have been avoided. And, I, of course, my uncles and some of my aunts were there, and they were having this discussion. And, of course, you know, I was a young pastor and probably uh, uh, more open to just say something with no restraint. But it bothered me. It, it, it just bothered me when, I, when they were kind of talking nonchalantly about putting her on. And I remember walking out in the kitchen, I says, let me get this straight. Here's a woman who carried you, 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 and you up and down the stairs of that house. From the moment you were born, fed you, cradled you, cared for you, wiped your nasty rear end, bathed you, listened to you, put up with you, and now you just want to let somebody else do it. Now, there's a time for that. I understand that. Do not misunderstand it. But so often we convince ourselves that we don't have the time. That's wrong. It's just wrong. That's what Paul's telling Timothy here. You know, listen, we should be willing to repay our parents. My mother put up with me for a long time. And I caused it. My parents all, oh, there's six boys in my family. I don't even know how my mother survived it. But she did, and she was uh, actually stronger at it than we were. But, you know, that's a whole other story. Because my mom had put a knot on your head so fast it wasn't funny. Yeah, with all the love that God could muster at that moment. You know, she was uh, great at it, you know. 
this was back when brooms actually were made out of those big old, uh, you know, they actually had wooden handles on them. Oh, I had a nut the size of an egg on the back of my head and deserved every bit of it, I might add, you know. But my mom only stood four foot eleven. Okay, four foot, a little tiny thing, weighed maybe 105, 110 pounds at the time. And uh, yeah, so she had to defend herself. And, uh, but you know, you, know you, you, you just want to repay that. So he says, look, honor them. He says, let them learn piety at home to requite or to repay their parents. For that's good and acceptable unto God. Just the way it should be. You know, Paul defines, you know, for Timothy what a true widow is. And he's basically saying if they have family, you know, the, 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 as far as when it comes to the church being accountable, these are the people, let their families do it first. Then he goes on in verse 4. He says, now she that is a widow indeed, and desolate, trusteth in God and continueth in supplications and prayers night and day. Now, this is really uh, the qualifications for a widow. Uh, who were to be taken care of by the church. And he's just laying it out. That they were given a ministry. And I think this is kind of cool, that these older women <coughs> who were widows and who were desolate, didn't have any kids. I mean, their kids, or maybe their kids were gone, you know, were dead, whatever, uh, you know. But they were by themselves. They would actually, the early church would actually bring them in, and they would actually give them, for lack of a better term, they'd give them a job. And what was their job? They paid them, they took care of them, and they would be in a group, and these older widows, what would they do? They prayed. I love that. Night and day. That's what it says. They made supplications and prayers night and day. Now, if the church wants to spend some well-spent money, I'm not kidding. Man, can you imagine? You get four or five godly women who has a history of that, who they've raised their children in the Lord, they've done, and we just simply help them out and yet when they go and they're pray oh man can you imagine the the power that is in those kind of prayers come on man you know i i yeah that that was that was man i'm telling you that's the way it should be done and this is what paul is telling timothy but she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth hmm. interesting i've said before i mean you know, it's bad enough when you meet a dirty old man. Listen to me on this. Dirty old men are just disgusting. They never have like, you know, like crack nasty jokes, stuff like that. It's even worse when you come across an older woman that does it. There's just something more gross about it. Because, you know, you, you look at an older woman and, and you see them and you kind of think of them as grandma, you know. You're as old as I am, you kind of think of them as mom. But there's nothing worse than a woman who just has a, you know, foul mouth and, you know, you go to Vegas and they're sitting there at the tables, got one arm on the arm by, you know, they're pulling the levers, you know, and they're gambling. <laughs> I did just something, you know, I don't know. They live in pleasure. This is what Paul was talking about. These are women who are just given to pleasure. You know, they're not laying or they're not pouring over prayer and supplication. They're just living for pleasure. And he says, really, he says, they are dead while they live. That is, they're dead to any good works. They're dead to any eternal value. And it's too bad. But there's just something wrong about it. In verse 7, he says, and these things give charge that they may be blameless 
And if any provide not for his own, especially those of his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. So when you're talking about the issue of taking care of these widows who are widows indeed, as Paul says, he says if any won't provide for their own, especially those of their own household, they're worse than an infidel. Why does he say that? Because even in the world, of course he's talking about Christians, because even the world to the most part understands taking care of their own. But when a Christian who claims the name of Christ doesn't see that necessity, there's something wrong, deeply, deeply wrong about it. And Paul says, really, they've acted worse than an unbeliever when they get to that point. Verse 9, he says, let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old, having been the wife of one man, well reported of for good works. If she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. But the younger widows refuse, for when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry, having damnation, actually that word is condemnation, because they have cast off their first faith. And with all they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers, also busybodies, speaking things that they ought not. I will, therefore, that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give no occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. So the younger widows, he says that what happens is if they're under the age of 60 is actually what he's talking about. You know, he's not condemning the fact that these women want to get married again. He's not really saying that. I know from the text it might sound that way. That's not really what he's saying. What Paul's actually saying is that if you bring them in, if you make them part, let's say that that little group of the older women who are widows indeed, and they're praying every day, and they, you know, they're on the payroll. And if you take a younger woman and you bring her in and you make her part of that, and because it takes a lot of commitment to do something like that, and then the next thing you know, she falls in love with somebody, and then she wants to get married and then she doesn't want to leave that little group because now she's going to feel guilty and she's going to have self-condemnation. Paul's going, look, it's better off to just let her tell her to marry. Go ahead, if she can have children, bear children, do those type of things. It's better to do that than to have her suffering under self-condemnation for something that she really had no control over. But those who are widows indeed, those are the ones you want to encourage. We want to support them, and we want to allow the church to be uh, useful to them uh, when it comes to support. And so, you know, we talk a lot about church welfare programs, and, and uh, but the fact is, is that when it comes to the widows and it comes to widowers, even, I think that there's a great ministry there. And I think that, uh, especially in churches where there's a lot of them, and I think we overlook that. I think we neglect that. And, and uh but I've tried to open doors with that amongst, uh, and maybe even some of you, you know, I've mentioned certain things because I think it's a great opportunity. Uh, a lot of these women have a lot of things in common, not just Jesus, you know, but they have other things in common. And to just get together and have prayer and those type of things is very, very encouraging. Go ahead and read ahead. Uh, next week we will finish up chapter 5. And... Uh, because we're going to be looking at a few more things, and then we're going to, of course, I'm going to try to finish up chapter 6 next, well, next, well time after that. We will get through it, and, uh, but bear with us. Read ahead. Uh, you can even start 2 Timothy as we go into that because there's a lot of great stuff there. But until then, Father, we love you, and we just thank you for your word. 
we thank you, Lord Father, that we have this fellowship, Lord, and a ministry of reconciliation that you've given us. Lord, we pray that the gospel, that the grace and the mercy of Jesus has been communicated. I pray for those, Lord Father, who are listening, whether they're sitting here or by radio, and that, Lord Father, you would just bless them and just move upon their hearts, Lord Father, and let them know how much you care about them, how much you love them, and how much they need you. So we love you, Father. We thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name.